Welcome to Straight Talk Live. My name is Rick Snyder, one of the co-hosts. I'm the CEO of Invisible Edge, um, the head of culture for ReFound, and the author of Decisive Intuition. And I am absolutely thrilled about today's conversation with Mark Devine uh, around leading through chaos, which I know we all have been experiencing in our own ways. And as Mark was just reminding us on the prep call, it's always been chaos. Uh, but I would still call this chaos squared. <laughs> or it's, even, it's even a little bit more. Let's just be honest. The ante has been upped, okay? And so how do we respond to that moment? How do we respond to that situation? That's really where we're going to get to the heart of today. I also want to introduce our great co-host, as you all know, Af Malhotra. Af, take it away. Thank you, Rick. Uh, hi, everyone. Af Malhotra, co-host of Straight Talk Live and, and co-founder of Growth Enabler. Just before we got on the call and we pressed the live button, I said to Mark, Mark Devine, I said, so good luck, Mark. And he said, F, luck has nothing to do with it. So, um, uh, Mark, I'm going to go straight into it and, sure. um, and start the conversation. So you, you have a new book that you're, you're launching, um, Staring Down the Wolf, mm -hmm. which um, has caught everyone's attention. I, I have my copy. I can't get it signed because of uh, you're in a different part of the world because of COVID, but we will one day meet and I'm going to ask you to sign the book. Send it but to what, me. Yeah, I, that's what I'm going to do. Exactly. Uh, what, what a powerful title and what a great way of starting the conversation around, you know, the mental resilience, um, the, the capabilities that are required right now for us all on this call who, who are listening in to manage the chaos, to manage the uncertainty that the world has presented to us. And there's no better person than, than you in that you interestingly came from a corporate background and you had a family business, I believe. You went into the military, and I just really want to understand why and, and what compelled you to do so. And then, you know, having listened to some of the, the amazing work that you've done in the past, um, you you invested in yourself, you followed your passion, your dream to join the military, you trained your mind, you got into Zen meditation that you're going to tell us about. So over to you, uh, Mark, tell us a little bit about your background, your story, how did you get into the military? And, and why, have you, why have you invested your life in doing more of this stuff like writing books and podcasts? Why wouldn't you just chill out, sit back and say, <laughs> let me just observe the world. So uh, the ball's in your course, and then we'll just keep this free flow. Wow. You give me a lot to talk about. Huh? <laughs> I, do, how much, do I have one day or two days for this? <laughs> you can do it. Uh, well, you started, uh, your first question was about the seven, um, staring down the wolf, subtitled yes. seven commitments that forge elite teams. And why is that relevant today in these VUCA times? VUCA stands for volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, which when I used to say that nobody, you know, people would be like, uh, but now it seems like everyone kind of has figured it out. The jig is up, so I can't claim ownership of that anymore. But we've been using that term for like 25 years in the SEALs. We train for volatility, uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity. At any rate, um, a few things, few points really that are salient here. First, we can't do this alone. You can't navigate volatility and uncertainty alone. And most leaders are taught to be lone wolf, staunch individualists. I've got to have all the answers. I've got to be the one with the bold, hairy, audacious vision. And then I bring it to the team and the team's supposed to just rally around me. Mm. That's fooey, right? It just doesn't work that way. The team is the new leader. The team has 20 times the potential and power of any individual leader. Now, of course, the leader is important, but the leader's role is to unlock that potential and to help the team ensure the team can perform at, a, at its peak and make really good decisions, especially when the crisis comes. The problem is, so that's the first point. So leaders need to recognize that they're the own limiting factor in team brilliance mm -hmm. to get out of the way, to check your ego at the door, to make it about the others. And the SEAL teams, we used to say, take your eyes off yourself, put them on the team. This is not about you, for gosh right. sakes. And the best leaders, we're able to figure out that early. When I went through SEAL training, I mean, I, I don't want to go on and on and on and on because I could. Uh, I have, you know, I have some experience like in front of the camera, so I could go on and on about this. But so I'll tell you a few salient points and, and then, let, let, you know, come back to you to ask some questions. I went through SEAL training in 1990 
And there are 185 pretty hardcore studs in my class. You know, for those who don't know, Navy SEAL training is the hardest training in the world, in my opinion, anyways, maybe our collective opinion. And um, it's arduous. So 85% of those who attempt it don't make it. So they either quit or they get injured or, um, you know, they manifest an out, <laughs> which has a little mm. bit more honor to it. That's mm. a lot of injuries we call quinjuries, quit injuries. And, um, but every one of these 885 were, were really prepared. Like you don't get in unless you're ready to go. These are the, the elite of the elite. 19 of us graduated. Wow. I was the number one graduate and my entire boat crew, we're organized into these small teams called boat crews of seven people. And some of the pictures are iconic where we're always carrying these little rubber boats that are called IBS. And we, we said that stood for itty bitty ship. <laughs> you carry them around in your head and they're banging here. And some people literally break their necks from bouncing this thing because they haven't prepared their, their structure properly. So all, my entire boat crew made it with me. And that's because I took my eyes off myself. I put it on and I made it about them. I taught them the skills I had learned from Grandmaster Nakamura, who was a Zen master masquerading as a karate instructor on 23rd Street in Manhattan for four years before I joined the Navy. Wow. At any rate, so... I learned that in the SEALs that um, it's all about the team. That's why we call it SEAL teams, not SEAL individuals. And any leader who, who really made it about themselves was basically asked to leave or they just, they just failed or they didn't make it through even the initial training. Now, part two that's really important about staring down the wolf is that it's hard work, right? When we, mm -hmm. when we grow up, especially in, well, any society, we grow up with a family that is flawed. I mean, I don't know anyone who doesn't have some flaws and, and, and the ones who say they don't are usually the ones that are most flawed because that was me. Yeah. I thought I had the perfect child, the perfect family until I realized that that was just a, a story that was just complete bull. And so you end up developing um, biases, reactionary conditioning and negative um, mental loops that then you bring to your team and it's like dropping little hand grenades on your team and it shuts them down. Mm. So the seven commitments that forge elite teams that I address in Staring Down the Wolf, the, the commitments are in an order for a reason. The first one is courage. And then comes trust. And then comes respect. And then that unlocks massive growth. So just those first four right there are enough to work on for several years with the team. Hmm. The premise, of course, is that the team as the main growth vehicle and the main contribution, the leadership engine, needs to be working on its own development, just like, like every individual needs to be working on their own development or else they get stuck. And then they, they stoop to the lowest common denominator, which is where the operating level of the, the lowest awareness level and the most negative of the team individually, the whole team will stoop or drop to that level. Mm -hmm. So you've got to break through all that. You've got to stare down the wolf courageously to eradicate your negative conditioning and your biases so that you can unlock the positive qualities of every individual on the team. And then when they synchronize, that's when you get the next three commitments, excellence, resiliency, and alignment. Mm -hmm. And those are really more like operational commitments. Like how do you get stuff done 20 times the level of, you know, the past before, you know, say pre COVID, you got to have unbelievable alignment in your team. You got to be committed to excellence in all of your actions, even the, mostly the small ones. Mm -hmm. And you've got to get up every day and do it over and over. Like Nakamura said, one day, one lifetime, all you got is today. So just bring your game, bring your whole self, bring your best uh, execution, excellence to the table and yeah. let's get it done today because tomorrow doesn't exist on the seal grinder there was a, a big poster we would run in and uh, it said the only easy day was yesterday which means mm -hmm. forget about it mm -hmm. don't don't expect to rest on yesterday's accomplishments today let's get busy right mm -hmm. so when you um when you courageously stare down your own shadow your own biases your own crap then guess what? Great trust begins to develop. You don't have to be perfect. In fact, perfectionism is one of the shadows you got to look at because mm. your team knows you're not perfect. In fact, we're inside the bottle. We can't read the label. And so mm. we show up thinking we're all these perfect beings because we're pretending we got these masks on and your team sees the mask. They don't, you know, mm. they see the person behind the mask and say, why are you wearing that mask? Why are you pretending mm. to be perfect? You don't have mm -hmm. this is a horrible idea. Yeah. Right? But they're not going to say anything to you because you haven't created an environment where that's safe yet. Mm. Anyways, I went down a rabbit hole already, but it's critical that leaders recognize that they're the limiting factor often in their team's success. Now, they're important. They got them some amazing qualities, but you got to eradicate your negativity 
to allow the positivity of the whole team to flourish so that you can navigate VUCA because it's the intuitiveness and the spontaneous uh, insight of the whole team that allows us to really dominate when crisis hits. Correct. Yeah. Mark, Mark, what would you say is that sweet spot right there, that secret place there where you move from a collection of individuals to a team and that moment where that shifts, where, you know, and classically in the military, I know that, you know, there's a lot of boot camp where they break you down individually and come together as a team. But if you think about like in a, a corporate culture uh, or something like that, other kinds of teams, where do you see that moment that transforms where they move from that individual, they eradicate their fear. How would you, how do you speak to that? Mm. Well, most, first of all, most teams don't operate this way yet. Mm. And that's why I say seven commitments to forge elite teams. There's not many elite teams out there because they haven't learned how to do this. And the SEAL teams, mm -hmm. you see it happen when every individual finally um, begins to activate this sense of flow on demand which is uh, which accrues to them when they begin to control their arousal response and deepen their powers of concentration and task focusing or orientation and simultaneously open up to mindful awareness. So the, the analogy I like to use is imagine a, a sniper pair, right? So mo I don't know if mo how many people know much about the military, but snipers don't operate usually alone, right? Unless mm -hmm. it's a serious crisis or they get separated. There, there's a spotter and then there's the shooter. Mm. Well, this is kind of, you can, we can equate this to left brain, right brain, concentration and mindful awareness. The, the shooter is very left brain. He's got to acquire the target. He's concentrating deeply on the target. He's focusing energy through his eyes, through the scope at the target. It is almost, it's exactly like an, an executive focusing on his main target of pivoting his company through COVID. That's, he's the sniper. Mm. The spotter, and that's very left brain. Mm -hmm. using concentration power. The spotter is scanning for threats. He's testing the direction of the wind, the speed of the wind. He's maintaining, you know, a, what we call broad vision or wide angle vision. His eyes are soft. He's not staring at, looking at, concentrating on anything except for trying to take everything in. Another way to say this is he's focused on the context of the battlefield whereas the sniper, the shooter, is focused on the content of his target. Mm. And so he's using right brain thinking and whole mind thinking. Both are important. But in the Western world, or most of the world, in the business world, I should say, it's not just Western, the business world, and in our academic institutions growing up, we are taught left brain, concentrate on the target, memorize this, and then, you know, as much, the more information you have stuffed into your brain, the more effective you're going to be. And that's actually the, the opposite is true. Mm -hmm. You want to let go of the information. Nakamura would say, empty your cup to have beginner's mind so that you can not only concentrate on the target without predisposed biases, thinking you know how to, you know, to engage the target because you've learned all these things, which may not be relevant in this new battlefield, but you can simultaneously open up to that mindful awareness. So the context is constantly with you. The experience of that is your brain settles down into an alpha state and your breathing slows down, which is also a skill that we practice. You're breathing slowly, diaphragmatically through your nose and you experience flow. And I've never heard anyone else talk about flow being a skill that is trainable, but we trained flow. And when a team trains flow together, then they access this unbelievably rich ability to concentrate all their minds with laser-like focus on a target while simultaneously being open to the rich context of what's happening around them. And then you get team flow. And that's when you get spontaneous insights and your intuition is telling you, don't go left because there's danger over there, but go right because that's where the opportunity lies. And again, it's 20 times the power of any single individual doing this who's prone to, to uh, doubt themselves, especially mm -hmm. when the intuition you know, comes up. And you, you know a lot about that, Rick, with your book, but doubt is an intuition killer. You know? Mm -hmm. I, went, I, you know, I went over a lot there, but um, the question specifically is how does that open up for the team? What's the inflection point? And the inflection point for me is when everyone commits to training these skills, acknowledging that they're important and then training them. You know, and so we at my company and what I teach for our corporate clients, our leaders, is that the skills that we call unbeatable mind, which came out of my work with the SEALs, mm -hmm. started with my Zen training with Nakamura, um, are meant to be trained 
as a team before the crisis hits or so that you have the ability to access this whole mind thinking when you know, throughout the crisis. And when you train these things daily, both individually on your own and with the team through these little drills, spot drills, for instance, um, my team and I and our clients, we box breathe, which is a breath control practice before every single meeting, even Zoom meetings for five minutes. Imagine, you know, having hundreds of people box breathing together with their eyes closed before a really important meeting where, you know, where we're going to make some important decisions. That simple practice is extraordinary, right? And that's the beginning point of opening up team flow. Mark, could you tell us a little bit of, sorry, Rick, could you just explain um, the concept of box, what is it, box breathing? Because we may not have everyone who's familiar with this. Sure. Do, do I have a day to teach this one also? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, in 30 seconds. <laughs> okay. Breath control leads to a control of our arousal response. It helps us manage stress. Uh, it also helps us improve the clarity and the quality of our thinking because it's stimulating our brain. Because when we breathe, we're not just breathing oxygen, but we're breathing conscious awareness, life force, right? And so we breathe with awareness as opposed to unconsciously. Unconscious breathing, which often has mouth breathing and a pattern of 16 to 20 breaths per minute leads to erratic thinking and erratic emotional uh, behaviors, which perpetuates the, the negative loops and the reactionary behavior. So we can reverse engineer it. We slow our breathing down to an optimal breath pattern of roughly six breaths per minute. We do that by breathing through our nostrils, which splits the air. It also sends it up the energy centers. We know that from you know, the, the energy centers that, you know, especially the Ayurvedic and Chinese systems have mm. mapped quite accurately. And that lights up and, and vibrates our chakras and integrates our body-mind system. It also stimulates the right and left hemisphere of our brain because my left nostril stimulates the right hemisphere, right nostril stimulates left. So so much going on there beyond just the arousal control. When you breathe through your nose using your diaphragm full, full lung capacity, you're getting more oxygen, but you're getting more life force, but you're also massaging your vagus nerve, which triggers your parasympathetic nervous system, which counteracts the fight or flight which is sympathetic nervous and everybody is in fight or flight. We just have to accept that because that's, we're wired for fear to, to think everything is fearful or danger or threat. Our mm. brains, left brain and our amygdala brain is five times as negative as it is positive because it's always scanning for, it's a survival mode uh, mechanism. So we interdict this and we redirect our minds to more positive and courageous behavior through the breath. That's the, like the first step. It, it bleeds off stress uh, over the long term, and it, and it, prepares us for the battle of the day. So we practice every morning and then before every important thing. The actual practice itself is to slow down your breathing and count five breaths on the inhale while you breathe through your nose and to fill that five count with the breath. So it's not like, and then three, four, five, it's inhale one, two, three, four, five. And then here comes the box pattern. I hold my breath and I hold it with a lifting sensation like, and that full breath lifting, I've got a lot of energy and you can even add visualization to this and concentration that's a stacked practice, five count. And then you exhale for five count through your nose. Now you have a relaxing kind of descending feeling, sinking in, calming, detoxifying, and then you hold your breath after the exhale for five count. And that's where you're looking for pure stillness. It's like, that's the meditation piece where you're just looking for insight or some messaging from your intuitive self. And um, we like to do, I do this as a 20 minute practice every morning. And we like to do it for five minutes, which is roughly, you know, maybe 12 rounds uh, before every important call or, or meeting. It really is a profound practice. Like I said, it's not just, it's got a physical, a physiological, a psychological and a psycho-emotional impact on your body to really, really develop a lot of clarity, calmness, you know, you're poised, but calm, kind of like the, the Zen monk sitting on the bench. But, you know, if someone were to sneak up on them with a sword behind them, they would feel it and they would spring into action, right, to avoid the danger and to take care of the threat. And that's what, you know, if we're all jacked up in sympathetic nervous system, fight or flight, trying to deal with something like an economic shutdown from COVID, you're just not making good decisions. Mm -hmm. Your body exactly. mind is, is, is shut down. Your executive functioning is really truncated and and corrupted with fear. And so you got to calm down and, and gain that clarity and do that before you make the decision, you know, hopefully not mm -hmm. after.
Mm. You know, that's, this is one of the biggest tools that I actually use in my coaching as well with, uh, you know, executives, corporates, especially during COVID when there's so much overwhelm going on and stress mm -hmm. in places they've never had to be challenged. And just that box breathing before a big meeting or before you walk into your office or mm -hmm. as you're in the parking lot, getting ready for the day, whatever that takes, uh, is one of the biggest changes I've seen. Um, what I want to ask you about, as you had mentioned, um, I actually referenced you in my book around decisive intuition with your book, A Way of the Seal. And I was just really amazed by, here's someone from the military talking about intuition and that mm -hmm. it's actually accepted and embraced and used because that hasn't been our known tradition in, even in the corporate space or in the military. And so it was very exciting for me as a researcher to see how you were doing that. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to ask you, what besides box breathing, what are other practical ways that you see in the military where they're training that spidey sense? They're training that intuitive ability. <clears throat> There's quite a few ways. For a lot of us in the special ops community, it actually accrues naturally. But my experience is if you don't train it, then it atrophies. And, and I had that experience after. So I, I recognized that and I began to train and I teach it as a practice. Intuition is meant to be practiced. Mm. And, and, it's, and that actually to be fair, it is also the outcome of learning to access whole mind thinking. Because the idea of whole mind is that you're not just your thoughts and your emotions. In fact, you're, you're far more than that. So mindful awareness allows us or helps us to separate from our thoughts and to observe them for what they are and then to curate the quality, quantity, and directionality. And that starts with the box breathing, concentration training, and then mindful awareness training. So that's kind of a precursor to developing the skill of intuition. Not to say that while you're developing those first preparatory skills, you won't have intuition starting to pop up and be more of your life, but you really have to prepare the ground in order to tap into the intu intuition centers. And there's three of them primarily, but there's more actually, but the three primary ones are your gut. You could say that'd be your lower chakras. You know, the survival instinct, survival um, mode comes from your biome largely because you have, you know, more like 85, 95, I don't know what that's like massive amount percentage of your body's genomes, you know, right, is in the bugs in your biome. Mm. It's not in our own DNA. And those bugs have a survival instinct. Mm. And they're, you know, it's a sympathetic relationship that you have with your biome. But if you're shut off from their signals, you won't experience their signaling. They won't, you know, you won't hear or feel or sense. And it's not like the bugs get together and they say, hey, Mark, uh, don't go left because there's a bomb over there. We need you to go right. And you're like, oh, okay, biome. Mm -hmm. No, you just feel this tightening or this, this sense. Now, how do the bugs know there's something there? Well, energy. Like ultimately we are all just energy vibrating at different frequencies. And so the bugs, maybe they're just able to feel the energy of the negative situation that is happening. It's already happened in someone's mind to set that bomb. We live in an eternal now moment where past and future don't have any real meaning. And so the bugs are probably in that eternal now moment and they feel, they sense the danger, mm -hmm. even though it hasn't happened to us in a temporal time sense. Mm -hmm. And so what you're gonna feeling is you're gonna feel a constriction and a, and a real tug to just not go there. And then your rational mind kicks, kicks in and usually says, don't be silly. Mm -hmm. That's the route we plan to go. We're going that route. You know, we invested a lot of money in that route, a lot of time, a lot of energy. And so you, and you just ignore it. And then you go that route and you get blown up. And I mean, in the military, that's a very real thing. In the business world, yeah. your project gets blown up because you ignored that instinctual thing. The second center of intuition, and these actually kind of line up with our chakras too, because mm -hmm. you could say the bottom three are really the biome and that sense of danger and opportunity and creativity and you know opening that up is really powerful and then the heart is the second center and i actually call this intuition so the first one the biome i call instinct like mm -hmm. instinctual intu intuition mm -hmm. the second one I, I i call intuition where you can intuit into another human being mm -hmm. and a collection of human beings so this is you know the heart has neurological processing power, it's got neurons, it's got neurotransmitters. So does the biome, by the way. So they call it the heart brain or the heart mind and the little brain. And um, the heart 
has the ability to really project out and gather information in far greater than the brain. Now, I think the biome is even further. Like the biome can pick up information across the world. The heart can pick up information across the room, maybe even, you know, across the city block. And um, similar thing to the biome, if you don't train, if you don't acknowledge and train to open up and trust your heart, and most people don't, they close their heart because it can be painful when you get hurt. You open up and trust and practice things like gratitude and humility and, you know, visualizing your heart, opening up and accepting and taking in energy. But, you know, there's certain practices where you also protect yourself from negativity and people trying to hurt you. Then you tend to be way more intuitive from an empathetic standpoint. Like you come into the team and you just feel like, oh, interesting. Sally's having a rough day. And guess what? Sally's rough day could, like I said earlier about the, the staring on the wolf, could be the limiting factor today for my team because we tend to drop to the lowest common denominator of the energy that we're dealt with. So if mm. Sally comes in and starts dropping little hand grenades, emotional bombs, then everyone's going to be chattering about it. You know, you're going to start getting all the crosstalk and everyone's going to be like, what's going on with Sally? And then they're <laughs> not going to be focusing and their energy is going to be dropping, mm. you know, mm. and they're feeding negativity and they're feeding the fear wolf instead of the courage wolf. Mm. So we can use our heart's intuition to be able to interdict mm those those bombs and, and really help Sally get back on track. And we do that through active listening, really being present, feeling into it, and just and then having a heartfelt conversation, which can immediately shift someone out of negativity back into positivity. Mm-hmm. Really mm-hmm. profound. Mm-hmm. The third intuition center is your mind. Now it's a certain way that your mind, your brain works, right? The brain works, has five dominant capacities. It's got a lot more than this, but there's five dominant capacities. The first one everyone's familiar with, and that is actual cognitive thinking. You know, your executive function, neocortex, left brain thinking, solving problems, making decisions. And most people operate there all the time. When that um, brain is online, you're in a beta state, sometimes gamma if you're all jacked up. The second is... Um, accessing memory, right? So I'll, I'll, all these kind of overlap and weave together, but if you were to parse them out, accessing, storing and accessing memory is the second way that your brain works. And ironically, when we store a memory, we store it with a supercharged amount of energy that is outsized based upon you know what's happened at the time, as well as um, imperfect information. And so that means that pretty much all of your memories are flawed or are leading you to suboptimal performance. And you need to go back or, you know, the memories that are, and maybe it's like 80% of them, you need to go back and recreate those memories to decharge them and to remove the errors of information that you had at the time that the event occurred that you stored that memory. And this Mm -hmm. releases a tremendous amount of information. So that's the second uh, way that the brain works. The third is imagery, which is one of the most powerful skills we teach to special operators and also to my corporate clients. How do we use imagery to get us out of the default mode, which is fantasy? Fantasy mm-hmm. is, again, tying in imagery to a, a memory of the past that, of great disaster or of childhood trauma that says, I'm not worthy. And then you have an image of yourself as unworthy and unwhole. No, matter of, no amount of goal setting and you know, positive thinking is going to help you. If you have negative imagery about yourself, Mm -hmm. because that ties to your emotionality. (laughs) And also, excuse me a second. Maybe I'm talking too much. (laughs) We're box breathing while we're listening to you. (laughs) Right. The imagery, imagery occurs predominantly in a past or future state. And most people will have more, more orientation toward future or past. Leaders tend to be future oriented. Mm -hmm. Entrepreneurs tend to be Mm future-oriented. Bureaucrats tend to be Mm past-oriented, right? Mm -hmm. Makes sense. They're trying to protect the status quo. Leaders are trying to break it and create Mm -hmm. something new. And so they're future-oriented with their imagery. Now, what you're doing with powerful imagery, we call that imagination, and then you create an image of the future. Let's say you're both entrepreneurs. You create an image of the future that you see in your mind. You say, I know that that is really that's going to work. It's what people need. It's going to provide a lot of value because it's what we would need and it's providing value to us. It's aligned with our calling. 
I get energized by this, which means it's really right. It's important. It's valuable. And so let's create that image. And when a team does this together, it's 20 times the power because everyone's got the same image of future victory. Then what you're doing essentially is practicing that image. We call that visualization. Mm -hmm. So first comes the imagination to create, then comes the visualization, which is to practice. Every time you practice an image of a powerful future state, whether that's who you are, who you are becoming, or whether that's what your organization is and, and the impact it's having on the world, you're creating a memory. Mm. It's a memory, just like a past memory, but it's a memory of a future event that hasn't happened yet. Remember, everything happens to us in actually this real now eternal moment. There really is no future and past, but we can imagine a future, create a memory of it, which then draws us toward it like a magnet. And it also creates a synchronicity in the world where obstacles start to fall away and things start to line up. Every time you visualize that image, that future image, it gets stronger, meaning like thoughts have actual energetic power. They have weight. If you have one thought, it kind of flits away and it doesn't impact the world a lot. But if you, let's say in a negative sense, you're thinking about disaster and how, how much a loser you, were, you are because, you know, you said something bad or you did something really bad and you keep thinking about this and obsessing about this, then it gets stronger and stronger and stronger in your life and you just attract more of that. That's yeah. why poverty is so insidious because if you have a poverty mindset, you keep thinking about poverty and how bad you are and how a victim you are, then you keep getting exactly what, you, what you're thinking about. Same mm -hmm. thing about positive future vision. So you create that positive memory and you keep layering and layering energy on top of that until that image becomes almost physical. It's mm -hmm. just thick. And, and vibrating at a high level and an energy of attraction to that. So that's imagery. Remember, I'm talking about the five way the brains work and I haven't even gotten to the intuition center yet. The fourth Mark, is dream. Can I interrupt, do you mind if I interrupt of just course, for a moment? Yeah. I want to ask you a question because this is fantastic and I'm, I'm relating this to, you know, we wear different hats in our mm -hmm. lives. I'm relating to this, this to the hat of a parent, right? So I, what I'm starting to notice is that young people, kids, kids, um, children, children have this incredible capacity and capability to imagine mm -hmm. dream fantasies. And you see that in the books, the storybooks, you see it as adults engaging with children. We also turn on the imagination with the child, We're almost fantasizing with the child when we're reading a storybook, or if I don't have the book, I've got to imagine it myself. And I noticed that and we all have it. I do believe we're gifted with imagination, which is the memory that you're referring to, which is so powerful. But it feels like over the last five decades or so, maybe longer, but through the industrial era and revolution, and the fact that we've been bound by the, or we've been tyrannized by, or been overtaken by the clock and the time, the concept of the nine to five, we've forgotten to imagine. I feel that adults have forgotten to imagine. We've forgotten that we have the capability to fantasize, to imagine, to dream. And we're, we're spending millions of dollars in the corporate, at least, on retraining ourselves mm -hmm. on the skill that we already have, which is, well, well Mark, how do you actually turn on imagination? Mm -hmm. So you, you train the elite Navy SEALs, you've got a, you, you know, you've come from that background. You're talking about Zen, you're talking about chakras, you're talking about meditation and all of these great things. And I know you spend time with the corporates too. So my, the first part of my question is, what can we do about reconnecting with imagination? Because I do genuinely believe a lot of people are listening to you saying, that's okay for you because you've got all these training capabilities and you're a master in this and a master in that. I, I don't, I can't even, I can't envision tomorrow, let alone the next 12 months. What, what guidance would you provide? What would you say to someone who was to throw that at you? Yeah, it's pretty simple. And you're, you're absolutely right. F. The, um, we've outsourced our imagination to the media. Mm -hmm. And so they fill it up with whatever they want, which is, and so they control the narrative. They're the ones imagining, and then we're just receiving. And uh, that passive receiving is really dangerous because you're just taking in all sorts of garbage, you know, a lot of really violent negative imagery. And, and that, you know, keeps people, keeps culture locked in a cycle of negativity. And you see that being played out in the streets and in a political system and whatnot. So leaders and youth, particularly who are the future of this world, if you want, we want to move to more positive, uh, interconnected, world-centric perspectives where, you know, we're, we're mutually supporting each other, but also acknowledging and celebrating our differences. Yeah. 
we need to take back our capacity to imagine that future. And so the way to do that, in my opinion, is first shut off the freaking media. I haven't watched network TV in over 20 years and it's mm -hmm. painful. When I turn it on and I watch it, I'm like, whoa, mm -hmm. like getting hit by a, a, a tsunami of negativity and the imagery is so fast. My brain works at a very, very high frequency when I imagine it and everything like, but the, the, the amount of imagery that's popping, mm -hmm. um, I've taught my brain to really slow down and to, and to experience the rich texture you know, and details and um, it, it actually is real, it's kind of jarring for me and I have to turn it off really quickly, which tells you something, right? That mm. if, you've, if you're comfortable with that, then your brain has basically been wired differently through the media and it's going to function in a dysfunctional way because it's not right. made to work that way. And you get all that negativity pouring into your subconscious mind. So turn off the media and I'm including social media that is not curated with, you know, balance and positivity, right? So common junk in the silos that we listen to or, or mm. feed into on Facebook and whatever, Twitter. Um, secondarily, uh, learn to read, you know, get back into reading and journaling. So two lost arts, mm. read and journal every day. And that's some of the, the richest time I spend during the day is reading. I try to read. I, my goal is to read a book a day. And so, but I've got two or three types of reading. So one is audiobook where I get massive, awesome imagery to create love that I use the audiobooks to create to practice my imagery the second is like reading um really interesting novels and uh, also you know kind of like spiritual texts and things that i'm gonna like have to go over every word and ponder mm -hmm. and i'm only gonna get one or two pages in you know in a day and the third is reading for information and those books i grok you know, like mm -hmm. when I first got your book, Rick, I grokked it. I, I haven't read it word to word. I'm anxious to do it. I'm looking forward mm -hmm. to doing it. But I opened it up. I looked, I just scanned the table of contents. And then I, I read the first, you know, basically few paragraphs. And I turned to the end. I read the, you know, the sum, summation paragraphs. And then I literally flipped through it really quickly, see what all the titles were. And just to get, a, get the sense of the, con back. remember I said content versus context. I was right. using my right brain to just absorb information that was coming out without trying to understand the content just yet. Mm -hmm. That's the third way that I read reading and, and then journaling, you know, using your, an actual pen and paper to think, to, to drop down ideas, to just kind of like draw some pictures is a great way to mm -hmm. really spark your imagination and your, and your visual cortex, mm -hmm. uh, your imaging, you know, center of your brain. Mm -hmm. Um, drawing. I took a five-day drawing class called Drawing from the Right Side of the Brain. It was mm. phenomenal. And mm. at the end of the class, I was able to draw a self-portrait that looked, you know, somewhat like me. <laughs> <laughs> and um, that's a great way to do it. And so those creative arts where you're really, you know, using that, you know, the imaging feature. I'm not adverse to TV or videos if they're positive and not going to, you know, mm. just fill you up with subconscious nonsense. It's important. You know, I'm glad you brought that up. It really is important. The, everything in the world, both in culture and in an individual's life, first starts as an, an image, an imagined thing. So Correct. for imagining disaster, we get disaster. For imagining great, you know, abundance and success, which is what I'm imagining, and I teach that the world and earth itself is amazingly self-healing mechanism. So if we just stopped harming her mm -hmm. deliberately, and then started to connect with her more. You know, if everyone started, even if they, everyone just grew one plant in their home or yeah. started a small garden plot, and not only would be, we'd be much more resilient as a culture, you know, if everyone grew a little bit or, or every community had five community gardens, Mother Earth would be tended to, right? Our, our whole, one of our missions as humans is to curate and heal and protect Mother Earth, not to rape it. And, right. yeah. you know, we've been raping it. So, that um, positive image of the future where human beings are acting in concert, um, not always in conflict, who yeah. recognize their sameness more than their differences, who are world-centric in solving the major problems of the world and get closer to the earth and recognize that they can't live without the earth, right? Mm -hmm. The earth is part of us. We are part of her. That's a positive view of the future. And we talk about that with my tribe and I have a, a mission to train and inspire 100 million people to this path of uh, what I call enviable mind, where we are all 
mastering ourselves in service is something much bigger. Mm -hmm. And that service has those qualities I was just talking about, right? It's world centric, it's connected, it's healing, it's positive. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, and the, and the ripple effect from that would be profound. profound. Yeah. Mark, I want to ask you about this really quick is I think one of the keys to what you're talking about is the archetype of the masculine. Mm -hmm. And how the masculine, if you look in traditional ways, is very, you know, command and control. It's extracting from the earth, like you're talking about. It's what can I get? It's more driven and focused in those ways. And it has its power, positive attributes, as we all know. But what I'm noticing, and I know what you're noticing too, I'm imagining, is even in the military, even with the elite warriors, or even in the corporate world, we're seeing emotional intelligence. We're mm -hmm. seeing intuitive intelligence. We're seeing mm -hmm. these things being embraced and recognized as necessary as part of this changing archetype of the masculine uh, in order to have more balance and more relatedness with the world. Mm -hmm. What are you seeing in that way? And what have you had to navigate? Because I'm sure that's not always easy when you're up here talking about meditation and maybe you know, you're getting judged by a million other cadets or whatever's going on. How, how have you had to navigate this in these worlds and be one of these trailblazers in this way? Sure, that's a great question. The language we use is really important and the complexity of things turns people off, right? Mm -hmm. So two key things that have really helped me deliver this message of balance between the yin and the yang is to use language like, instead of saying masculine, we say performance, building, getting things done. Mm -hmm. Instead of saying feminine, we say potential, creation, imagination, meditation. Mm -hmm. And the yin and the yang coexist. Everything that you do has the seed of potential in it. Mm -hmm. The problem is most people just focus on the performance and they don't focus on the potential, but they're mm -hmm. equal parts. You don't have to spend equal time. Like in an average 24 hour day, you might be spending eight to 10 hours performing, but most people spend zero hours in their field of potential trying to curate the quality, quantity, directionality of their imagination and their, their thought quality mm -hmm. and their emotional power. So what we like to say is, you know, do the 80-20 rule or the 90-10 even. Spend 10% of your time focusing on the quality and improving your potential. Mm -hmm. And we do that through the inner practices of concentration, box breathing, concentration, mindful awareness, and insight development, right? Mm -hmm. And so we do that in our morning routine and our evening routine. We do that through our workouts and through things like box breathing and spot drills. And I could go into more of those later. So by the end of the day, you've spent at least an hour, and for me, it's more like two to three hours, refining your potential. And that's the feminine. So I don't use words like feminine because guys are going to, well, I don't want to be more feminine. <laughs> it's just an energy. Everyone's got creative energy and potential, and everyone's got performance energy, the yin and the yang. And, and, the, and the Eastern symbol, the yin-yang, is kind of one of my dominant uh, archetypal images that I invoke a lot of times. And the images that it's more of a holographic representation of the human being in total balance. And the human being in balance has equal energies, equal access to the yin, mm -hmm. the creative potential, as well as to the yang, which is the performance getting things done. And they train them both. But when they live, where they live is at the, as, is at the razor's edge between them. Yeah. Right? yeah. They're not trying to like, you may practice things in the potential, but you're, all, you're also performing a practice. So you're performing mm -hmm. it with discrete attention, you're um, performing it with an intention to master yourself so that you can serve more powerfully. And people say, well, I don't, I'm a leader. I don't have time to do that. I'm like, well, if you're not doing it, then what you're telling me is that you just are good enough and you're just going to go to your team and, and, and just see what happens today. Mm -hmm. And guess what? All those negative conditioning from in childhood trauma comes with you. And there, you, and there you go. You show up with that crap, that emotional baggage, and you mm -hmm. drop it onto your team, and then it shuts mm -hmm. them down. Mm -hmm. But if you were to spend just 20 minutes or a half hour in the morning going into the field of potential, breathing into it, sharpening your powers of concentration, opening up to mindful awareness to be um, appreciate the context of why you're on this planet, who you all really are as a human being, mm -hmm. tap into your higher you know, self, big yeah. S self, right? And everyone's going to have a different way that they maybe understand that based upon their culture and their background. Some people would say tap into my spirit or my soul or you know, universal consciousness or God within me. It doesn't matter. The natives yeah. would say 
grandfather of all scouts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or the spirit that runs through me, right? Mm-hmm. So you tap into that. That means you're tapping into the field of potential. Mm-hmm. And once you're there, then you activate your imagery. So you activate your imagery, your imagination from the higher self and not from the ego self. And wow, so 20 minutes, mm-hmm. then your, so your intention there is I'm going to master myself. So I, I have this a groundedness. I'm concentrating on the right things for the right reasons. I know my why my intention mm-hmm. is clear that I'm doing this to better my team so we can better humanity. And then you go step foot in the battlefield. We call that winning in your mind before you step foot in the battlefield. Then you go step into the battlefield to perform and you bring all that that vibrational and energetic quality with you of the field of potential. You've already created the perfect outcome for the day. Then you navigate it. Now, no plan survives contact with the enemy. And so during the day, you're going to have challenges that arise. You know, you're going to have problems, you know, um, with relationships or have to solve problems that, you know, relationships are going to have little bombs that go off. And that's when you have to pause, mm-hmm. breathe, yeah. Go back in a moment, in that instant, go back into that state of performance. Remember who you are and why you're here. And then think clearly about what's the most important and powerful thing I can do right now to navigate this challenge or this crisis that's occurring, mm-hmm. you know, the, like mm-hmm. the immediate crisis. And then you act. Mm-hmm. And you act on the smallest, most fundamental and simplest action, mm-hmm. task that's going to lead you toward or out mm-hmm. of this situation. And doubt then is eliminated through action. And most people freeze because they're triggered in the fight or flight. And then they, and then they just stop altogether to try to create the perfect plan. And then they never act it on it because yep. things are changing yep. so fast that the plan is irrelevant tomorrow, right? There's no yep. perfect plan. Right. So we call that PBTA. You pause, breathe, think, act. Yes. And as you're acting, you also activate the OODA loop. And the, mm-hmm. and the OODA loop is what mm-hmm. allows you to fail forward fast. Mm-hmm. So the OODA loop, observe, orient, decide, and act, takes us out of um, this notion that if, I, if something doesn't go well, it's a failure. In the SEALs, we used to say failure is not an option. Mm-hmm. And at first blush, people think, oh, they've got to be so perfect that they don't fail. Correct. It's exactly the opposite. We're taught that failure is inevitable. Every day, every mission. So there's two things you can do. One, three things. One is to acknowledge that. It's a game changer. Mm. You're always going to have failure. It doesn't mean you're a bad person. It doesn't mean the plan sucked. It just means failure is inevitable. No plan survives contact with the enemy or reality. Two, you begin to have the capacity to imagine what could go wrong while simultaneously holding the vision for the positive outcomes that you're looking for. Mm-hmm. Right, it's not the same as expecting and visualizing disaster and then just working toward disaster, which is what mm-hmm. a lot of people do. Like the naysayers mm-hmm. or the negative nillies, or like or the pessimists. You know, they think that they're doing everyone a favor, and they're not because what they're doing is visualizing disaster, and that energy is getting then gets mixed up with the energy of the team that's working toward positive outcomes. So you want to have everyone visualize the, the same positive outcomes, but also be prepared and know where the critical nodes are, where the disaster could strike, where the challenges will hit. And th- then you have a, a hasty plan to deal with that. Now that plan may not also survive contact, but at least you're ready for it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. so then you end up with this attitude that, holy cow, really all we gotta do is execute on the highest and most valuable target that we can identify right now, and then let go, mm-hmm. right? Just let go. It, mm-hmm. it may work, it may not work. And if it works, great. Success, you know, not your belt. If it doesn't work, great. Mm-hmm. Success, not your belt, because we learned a way not to do things, mm. right? Or and there's information. There's a seed of information in that um, that micro failure, and at least we didn't blow the whole project because we were just executing on this little piece. So, figure out what went wrong, mm-hmm. iterate, and then go at it again. And you tend to develop great confidence and momentum this way. You know, really, ultimately, let's go back to the acronym VUCA, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. All of these cause us to freeze, right? Mm -hmm. So we use the skills of box breathing, concentration power, and mindful awareness to to get out of fight or flight and into receptivity and into that potential, maximizing our potential. 
And then as we execute in the field of performance, you know, we are able to acknowledge that we can't control anything yeah. outside of us. What, yeah. we, what we control is our attitude, mm -hmm. our vision, and how we respond when shit goes bad. Mm -hmm. And this is a game changer for a team. Mm -hmm. And so when we do that, then all of a sudden, we don't worry about uncertainty because we're going to fail forward fast, mm. right? Volatility doesn't affect us because we're executing with these micro goals. And, and so the volatility is going on out there, but we're still achieving success because we're just chipping away, chipping away, chipping away, like ratchet, ratchet. Once you get success, there's no going back. And that develops great confidence in the team. Mm. Complexity is destroyed by breaking everything down into these simple mental models and applying what we call the KISS principle. Keep it simple, stupid. Mm. And anytime something seems too complicated, then you just stop, you pause, breathe into it. Think about why does this feel complicated and gooey and sticky? It's because you, you're trying to do too much or there's yeah. too many players involved or there's not enough information. So just start to chunk it down and say, okay, okay, well, we can do this. Let's just do this part, right? So many people don't even make any progress on their, their goals because the goal is just too big, too audacious, mm -hmm. and it's irrelevant by the time they finally get around to practice, or, yeah. you know, to execute on it. Yeah. Mark, Mark we're, I'm conscious we have time's flown by really quickly. Mm -hmm. We, yeah, we want to reach out to the audience to, to I, post that. You've got some questions? I've got, got a bunch of questions coming through. Okay. I know we only have about five yeah. minutes, but I got to ask you this one, Mark. So Tom Peppel, who I think might be in your SEAL Fit program, I don't know if you recognize his name. Um, he says, knowing what you know now, uh, would you be a SEAL again? How does one reconcile the violence of war from the past and the peaceful warrior of the present? And do you see a conflict in preparing young men to become SEALs? That's a great question. You know, I've pondered that quite a bit. And um, the answer is I would do it again. It, it was an extraordinary experience um, because it was also my calling, right? So think about uh, one of the most powerful spiritual texts ever is the Bhagavad Gita, right? In the Bhagavad Gita, you have a warrior, Arjuna, uh, in, on the eve of a battle against his cousins and it's a big battle and a lot of people are going to die and he's really he wants to quit like he wants to throw in the towel he's scared but he also doesn't want to kill he doesn't want the bloodshed he's been working on his spiritual self and he's like i don't i don't want to do this anymore and krishna who represents god he's the charioteer who's helping him out um basically has a conversation with him and says arjuna you have to do this because it's your dharma and that's the that's, you know, the Sanskrit word that means it's your calling. And if you don't do this, then you will spend the left, rest of your life in regret. Mm. And you will accrue negative karma. And then you'll have to repeat this lesson again. Essentially, that's what he says throughout this book. And, and there's a lot more to it. I highly recommend uh, this book. Um, so when I dealt with this, I... I learned Zen meditation from Nakamura and I took to it, you know, like a moth to a flame. Maybe that's not a great analogy, but I really, really loved it. Right. And not many people did because they didn't see the value, but I experienced the value really quickly. Um, I grew up spending a lot of time in nature alone. So my mind was maybe a little bit more in tune with it. Mm -hmm. The process, I talk about that in my book, the way of the seal and also unbeatable mind, what happened to me as a young man, really taking Zen meditation seriously. The, the calling of your soul is inside you, but when you're distracted and your mind is running a million miles an hour and filled with all this negative imagery that we talked about from media, and you're all jacked up in fear, then there's no way you can hear it or sense it. And so most people are just following the, the drama, the storyline, the narrative of our modern world. Like you said, it's been that our ability to imagine anything different has been taken away from us mm. until or unless I should say you stop everything and just sit in silence. And it's torture for most people. Mm. But once you learn to love that, you get through the, the suffering of, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm confused. I'm just thinking. And you just keep at it and you use a, a skillful practice like we teach in Unbeal Mind. It starts with box breathing. Then suddenly you have these moments of quietude. And that's when the insight, I never got to this, but the fifth way that your brain works is direct perception. 
of, of both information that's outside of us. We think it's outside of us, it's actually not, but it, you know, it seems to be coming from somewhere else, but also inside, you know, and they, they, they spiritual people from the East say that your soul resides in your heart. So you're actually able to hear your heart's yearning, mm-hmm. which is your calling. So I was on my path to be a CPA MBA and I got those mm-hmm. certificates, but I was actually working as a CPA. Then to head back to the family business, and my spirit said, no, mm-hmm. you're meant to be a warrior. Mm-hmm. And so as a warrior, I had to deal with the conflict of the second part of the question. How do I deal with someone who's you know, cultivating peace on the one hand, but mm-hmm. you know, basically enlisted for violence on the other? Mm-hmm. And that is easy because the world has a lot of evil in it. And the warrior, the archetype of warrior is the person who is capable of controlled violence to end evil to protect humanity but they got to do it with complete awareness so i had seals who had that attitude but not many and i'm trying to Mm. teach everyone that attitude Mm. go into violence with awareness so you don't do any more harm you just Mm. help eradicate evil and even do that with as much peace as possible but if Mm. if not for the warriors Mm. the world be overrun by the warlords and the, and the mm-hmm. and the evil negative people because you're always going to have that no matter mm-hmm. how positive culture starts to get everyone still goes through or can get stuck in really really low levels mm-hmm. of what it means to be human so it's mm-hmm. the warrior's job to protect and serve mm-hmm. in alignment with their calling or their dharma and otherwise you wouldn't be called to that service mm-hmm. and if you're doing it because if you know i say this a lot of seal candidates if you're going to the seals because you just want to prove how cool you are then you're doing it for the wrong reason because you're going to be facing down an enemy someday and you're going to pull that trigger. Mm-hmm. I know I ran over, but it... this is fantastic. I mean, so grateful for you to bring your point of view of that, of war and peace and how to bring rightful action when necessary and reminding everyone that it's not really a duality if you're really holding that line. Um, right. So I know we're out of time here. Um, Mark, any last words for our audience? Oh man. Well, first of all, thank you gentlemen uh, for hosting me. This has been awesome and for, for doing what you're doing. Mm. And, you know, I think first off is f- stare down fear, right? Fear is the biggest limiting factor for everyone right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, it doesn't do you any good to, to wake up every day and be fearful. It just locks us into a, a cycle of dependence and thinking someone else is going to solve our problems. So take responsibility for, um, eradicating the negativity and the fear from your life. Mm. We start that with box breathing every morning, and then we begin to look at the quality of our thoughts. And every time we have a negative thought, we just blast it with an imaginary laser gun or whatever is your preferred thing. I throw a lightning bolt at mine and mm. redirect it to something positive. And that positive thought can be a mantra. So my mantras when I was went, going through SEAL training was, I'm feeling good, I'm looking good, I ought to be in Hollywood. I'm feeling good, I'm looking good, I ought to be in Hollywood. <laughs> Still with me today, but I'm not asking for the Hollywood part anymore. So day by day in every way, I'm getting stronger and better. Hoo-yah, hey, is another mm-hmm. good one, right? Or I've got this, easy day, hoo-yah. And then focus on something positive, a positive solution, and chunk it down to the smallest task possible. Mm-hmm. And then always imagine the outcome to be what you really want it to be. And don't imagine the negative stuff and the, you know, the failures. Mark, Mark before we close, you have to tell us what Semper... Gumbies. Yeah. So the Marine Corps have a really powerful kind of motto and it's Semper Fi. So there's probably some Marines listening. Semper Fi means always faithful. I love my Marine friends. They're always faithful and they're just amazing force and they'll go to they'll go into hell together. Mm. And the SEALs, um, because of the way we operate in much smaller teams and we have to solve problems on the fly and, and we're giving a lot we're given a lot more autonomy, then we need to be very flexible. So years ago, someone said, we're, we're Semper Gumby, and Gumby is this little guy. You bend him one way. No matter what comes at you, you can bend him. Nice. No, Lovely. Get through it. So let's be that's Semper the, Gumby. That's the visual memory captured. Anytime you're thinking that you're a little bit rigid or you're closed-minded, yes. you think of Semper Gumby. You think of the Gumby, the green thing, and suddenly things will change for you. Yeah, you go to, go to Amazon and buy a Gumby and just put them nice. on your desk. Like I yeah. Constantly Fantastic. Thanks, guys. Um, thank you again, Mark. And where can people find out about you and your work? Where should they go? Markdivine.com is my uh, personal website. At Real Mark Divine is my Twitter and Instagram. And then unbeatablemind.com is the, mm. the training we've been talking about here, the corporate training, executive coaching. If you want to be a certified coach, we have 500 
growing toward 5,000 certified coaches to teach this stuff. And then sealfit.com is the military style training. Excellent. I encourage our audience to check those out. You've been an incredible guest. I know we already want you back. So thank you so much, Mark, for your wisdom today. I appreciate it very much. Mm-hmm. And just really quick, next week, um, here's what we're gonna, we have on store, is we're inviting Hugh Hessing, former UK COO of Aviva, on how and why global enterprises actually stifle innovation and prevent transformation and what to do about it. It's going to be a fantastic show from one of the most brilliant minds. Until then, thank you again, all you Straight Talk Live audience members, for our fans out there. And once again, Mark, thank you so much for your wisdom. Look forward to having you back. Yeah, thank you. Over and out. Over and out. (laughs) Thank you.